Lord, it is only in your power, it is only by your grace and by your mercy that we stand. It is only through you that we have life. It is only by your work that we have any hope for eternity. And so we thank you and we praise you today. We ask that you would be with us as we look into your word to learn what you have for us today. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Just before I begin, I would like to offer a welcome to Jeremy and Mary Lynn Snyder. He is one of the Assembly Brethren uh, chaplains in the Army. We generally will see each other at ISI, uh, but today they have come for a visit. Please uh, welcome them after, and I know some of you already have. Today's uh, somewhat of a difficult It's not a difficult message. I mean, it's not hard. The words aren't hard to say. But there is an emotional component uh, that will be. Human trafficking is, is exploitation such that a person cannot refuse or leave because of threats, because of violence, because of coercion, because of deception and so forth. According to the International Organization, Labor Organization, 40.3 million people at any given time are victims of trafficking and exploitation. 10 million of those are children. Under U.S. federal law, children involved in commercial sex trade are by definition, regardless of the cause, victims of human trafficking. I, I want you to think about that. This is, uh, and right through the I-10 corridor right here, it's a big deal. We need to pray for these people every day. And without doubt, they are modern day enslaved people. First record of slavery in the Bible was nearly 3,700 years ago, and and 500 years before that, Hammurabi, in his code, already indicated that trafficking, that slavery, had existed at that time from antiquity. That word, slavery, leaves a stain and a strain on this country that it is so great it is difficult to talk about it, even when it's found in the text of Holy Scripture. But if we limit our discussion to platitudes or condemnations, which is what so many seem to be satisfied with, we are robbed of profound truths. Most preachers, look this up if you care to, either believe or, or flee to the notion that slavery in ancient Rome or Greece was equivalent to our employer-employee situation today. 
an author whose name you would all recognize, wrote this. The Roman world was based upon masters and slaves, or employers and employees. It is no different than today. There are those people who own companies and who own land, and they are the ones who hire those who work for them, and that's the way it was then. The terminology today would be employer-employee. The terminology then was slave and master. Outside of the most extraordinary situation that I can begin to imagine in my mind, that is sheer and utter nonsense. Slavery involves possession and ownership, not borrowship or rentership. I mean, that alone, in that context, is deeply offensive. There's only one owner, and I hope you all know this, I believe that you do. There is only one owner, and that is right by creation being God. And when it comes to other human beings, nowhere in the Bible does God delegate that right. I mean, slavery is not simply one of America's significant faults, but I'll, I'll say this, and this often gets obscured. It is one of the great sins of humanity. So without deflection from what's happened in this country, I humbly submit that the sin of slavery is much deeper and broader than what's happened in the last 300 years. My original notion, if you look at the bulletin, you'll see this, was to look at five verses today However, what I discovered was, I'm barely going to get through two. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. In 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, he's continuing to tell Timothy about practical issues that relate to the running of the church. He talked about elders, he talked about uh, deacons, he's talked about... Uh, widows, he's, he's talking now about, I'll go ahead and translate it. He's talking right now to, about slaves. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be respectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather that they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and uh, beloved. So first, even though Paul talks to enslaved people about how they should respond to their masters or enslavers, including believers, including Christians, He doesn't have any corresponding words to say to the masters. Now, uh, in fairness, Paul addresses this in other places, particularly in Ephesians 6. But nevertheless, this is a problem to the modern ear. Uh, One Christian writer put it this way. Any Christian today 
reading the first part of 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, probably reacts with disgust, anger, or bewilderment. And if we read further, we see no corresponding admonition to masters to treat slaves fairly and justly. Nothing. Now, we need to pause there for a moment because while I understand the author's sentiment and I understand the sentiment in general, the writer may have simply been inattentive or lacked scholarship or in fact was deliberately disingenuous. I don't know. I don't want to ascribe any motivations. But I want you to note, and we hit this in passing uh, uh, several uh, months ago now, that in the same letter in chapter 1, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul, he says this, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane. And then he gives a list, and in the middle of that list, it says slave traders. You may have missed that. Second, the word bondservant in verse 1 not only can be translated as a slave, but in most cases, and many argue, in all cases, it should be. In other words, they think, as I think, that bondservant just simply sounds nicer. That word doesn't mean bondservant. It doesn't mean indentured servant. It means slave. Now... However you look at that entire thing from an economic perspective or from a hierarchical power perspective, however you look at it, it of course runs the gamut. Of course, in Rome, there were slaves who rose to very high levels. In other nations, they rose even to the level of a king. And so, yeah, but there are other places where you served in order to die. That was it. What do you think gladiators were? Do you think gladiators were free? They were not. They were, in fact, slaves. So this word, whenever you see it, because we have a perfectly good word for servant, don't we? Right? Deacon. Perfectly good word. Verbal form or noun form. Boom. There you have it. That's not what this word is. And I think we need to be closer to the truth of these things in order to understand the value that the Scripture has for us. Paul's argument, in fact, about enslaved people and their enslavers totally disintegrates if we believe that it's a bondservant in view here. Why? Because we were bought with a price. We were not rented. We were bought with a price. God does not rent us temporarily out, nor does He rent us to other people. We are His forever. Now, this notion is complex. Admittedly, our text is as well. So we need to look at some more of what these things mean. One of the things that really gets hammered on this text and some others Exodus 21, primarily, is that the passage is not saying 
anything about the institution of slavery. And so while Paul directs his comments to enslaved people, he does not address slavery as an institution. And many take that lack of comment as an endorsement. You know, if you didn't say anything, you're complicit. Your silence is violence, as we have heard. In the Bible, though, it seems that there are two processes here in motion. One of which is what Exodus 21 is all about. Read Exodus 21 if, if you've ever thought about these uh, things. And, and, you know, perhaps you haven't. But Exodus 21 is not about the rightness or wrongness of the institution. It's about the regulation of it. It's so that people don't come to harm. And I believe that Paul is regulating an existing institution and bringing some justice and humanity to it, just as Exodus 21 does it. And then there's the other process that with time and with application, it would work effectively to undermine those kinds of institutions uh, to the point where they can be, should be, and in some contexts are, totally eradicated, but not through anarchy, gradually. Paul is regulating an existing institution. He's not endorsing it. He, as we mentioned, unequivocally condemned the slave trade. Here and in many other texts, this is part of the major point from this section that I'm talking about right now, is that social redemption is in fact important to the believer. But it is secondary to salvation. It is secondary to transforming lives through the gospel. Soul salvation, and don't, don't mishear me, I'm not talking about the transformations in society that need to occur are not important. What I am saying is that they're secondary to the salvation of your soul, transforming individual lives by the gospel. And as we will see, that societal change can occur. It was in this, in fact, that Christianity turned the world upside down. We're so immersed in it that we we don't recognize it. That we're, we're a product of biblical thinking and culture, even if it is, as uh, one author has stated, a cut flower society. That is, the bloom is still attractive, it's still uh, pretty, but it's been cut off from the root, the root being the word of God. And that happened some time ago, but if you know anything about the just the momentum of culture it's it's not easy uh, to change at that kind of a level victor frankel a holocaust survivor who lost his family in the death camps and wrote a book man's search for meaning said this don't aim at success the more you aim at it and make it a target the more you're going to miss it For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. 
And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as a byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. You see, ultimately, profound cultural changes do not occur from social activism as if the church should be involved and that's their primary method of winning the world, but rather it is through the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We're such a product of this thinking that it just kind of goes by. When you look at uh, other cultures worldwide, and some of you will know this experientially and some by observation, that they're more uh, formal. When I say formal, I don't mean, you know, a black tie and a tux. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking to is about social stratification. Uh, Throughout history, all around the world, uh, most socioeconomic levels of society did not mix, except for under very particular circumstances and in highly controlled ways. Now, this sounds odd to most uh, Americans because we'll sit next to and and we'll talk to anybody. Uh, That's not true in many parts of uh, the world, especially before the Industrial Revolution. You have castes and classes and social standings, and they were a thing, and they are a thing. Not so much here. We're what would be called informal. Nevertheless, Paul teaches in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So verses like this demonstrate to us that there's a fundamental doctrine of Christianity, and that is all people are created equal before God. Created in the image of God, therefore equal one another uh, before God. All are equal at the foot of the cross. The powerful and the powerless come to salvation in the same straightforward way. So what does this have to do with Timothy? So say you're a person uh, not of the working class. You're from old money. I, I, I went here, so I, and some of you may have as, as, as well. It's, just, it's really astonishing just to look at, but it's the Yacht Club de Monaco. And if you're a member of that club... The most exclusive club that you can hear of in the world. And you're enjoying your Salvatore Legacy drink at 10,000 bucks a glass. And you see me pull up to the dock in my 2001 F-250 truck with a fishing boat. You would not be happy. And I wouldn't likely be happy either. But what you had in Timothy's situation is that you had socially, culturally wealthy Romans who had trusted Christ and who owned slaves in their households. And now at worship, 
now at worship, when they would gather in the home and worship, they would sit together as brothers and sisters in Christ, literally breaking bread with each other when some of those, literally, the only food they would receive was the scraps that they could get together. And they would even drink from the same cup. Now, to an informal society like Americans, we go, so what? Not so then. This was highly stratified. It was extraordinary. It was an unheard of social change. And Paul knows that it has the power to cause such division and such problem that the gospel itself would be reviled. And he was helping Timothy. How do you navigate this problem-rich environment? You see, embracing Christianity did not free the enslaved person from their situation and didn't even lessen their obligations. In fact, Paul says, come to it a little bit harder, a little opposite there. So even while coming to Christ created a new relationship between the individual and God, It also did between the individual and others. You have that slave and master, brother and sister, bonded together in God's family. This was extraordinary, an extraordinary social change. And if you were a Roman, you knew who Spartacus was. You didn't think about, oh, Spartacus. No, you knew knew what a rebellion looked like. You knew what life-taking looked like. And no Roman wanted any of this to get out of control. So what was Paul saying? We already know that he was saying that to enslave another is lawless and disobedient. So what he's doing, it should become clear, is that he's using a fixed social institution to eliminate truth. Up to 60% of the population were in some sort of servitude or slavery in, in Rome. And so when Paul wrote, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor, the name of God and the uh, teaching may not be reviled. He wrote in recognition of the spiritual reality that this was not yet realized in a social context. He understood, what I believe he understood is this. Opinion, yes. Uh, Studied opinion, yes. If the gospel becomes identified as simply another socio-political movement instead of a redemptive, transformative one, then even the things that we agree on would ultimately be seen as political and not redemptive in nature. Paul was not endorsing the vile institution of slavery, but making a theological point so that the name of God would not be reviled, while at the same time guarding the gospel as he could so that the kingdom of God did not mix with the kingdoms of earth. Paul knew that salvation was not wrapped up 
in the alteration of society, but in the cleansing of the heart and the soul by the blood of Christ. Now, while political involvement has much to commend, nothing political ever addresses the dilemma of men and women's relationship to God or to the soul's eternal destiny. Cultural liberation can occur and stabilize, but only when sufficient numbers of people within the culture have been profoundly changed by the grace of God. I'm going to mention two of them as we go on here. Earlier I mentioned the fundamental Christian doctrine of equality. Uh, This should ring a bell. Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To hear those words, to allow those words to roll off your back and go, yeah, I've heard that before. And not profoundly impact you is because we have neglected history. And that's been to our detriment. Historically, the world knows a few things. One is tribalism. Two is monarchy. Three is dictatorship. And four is some level of democracy for the elite privileged few. Historically, I mean, even, not even, historically, the democracies that we ever heard of, that we ever studied, that we ever looked at, were actually an elitist group of people. Did you know that in Athens, at no time were more than 10 to 15 percent of the people voting? That's pretty elitist. And the writers of the Declaration knew this. The self-evident truth that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is in fact the philosophical and moral foundation, I would say spiritual foundation of the very republic. Most of us are at least familiar with the phrase American exceptionalism. For those who are ignorant, or for those who hate America, exceptionalism is defined as Americans thinking that they're better than anyone else, that they're at the top rung in the world, that they're all that and a little bit more. That's nonsense. And and I, I I hope you hear that. That's nonsense. Okay, so then what does it mean? Because it certainly sounds like if you say, well, I'm exceptional, (laughs) right? It certainly has a sort of a ring of pride to it. It's not what it's talking about at all. In order to understand what it means, you see, you must see that it's connected with another phrase, and that's America, the grand experiment. Experiment? I I trust you've heard these phrases because they're embedded in, in our culture, in our society. If it's an experiment, what is the research question? All of you who have 
you know, have advanced degrees or even, you know, in high school, you've got to go, okay, so what, what is your thesis? What, what question are you answering? What are you seeking to tell us? And it's just this. Is it possible for a government to be permanently maintained without privileged classes, without heredity, or self-appointed rulers? Is the democratic principle of equal rights, general suffrage, that is the ability to vote, and government by a majority capable of being carried into practical operation across the extent of the country? That's essentially the research question. Is it possible? Why in the world is that something? Why is that a something? I'll tell you why it's a something. It had never been tried in all of human history before. It never been done. That's the meaning of exceptionalism. It's not some kind of ethno, ego, centric, nanny nanny, boo boo, I'm better than you. It's can it work? Is it possible? The world has never seen this. It's exceptional because at that time, it was, in fact, the only one. Don't fall into the trap of understanding those phrases as having anything to do with personal or national superiority. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. Many of the founders, many of the founders didn't even think it would work. James McHenry, a Maryland delegate to the Constitutional Convention, wrote this uh, in his diary the day this happened, uh, at the last day of the Constitutional Convention. A lady came up to Dr. Uh, Benjamin Franklin and said, Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? A republic, replied the doctor, if you can keep it. When you look at the founders, many of them didn't think it was going to last a generation. It had never been tried. They had no idea. They did not know. Why do you think that George Washington steadfastly refused to be king? You are aware that there was a powerful movement in those days to make him the monarch. I'll tell you why he declined. He declined because he dreamed of the truth that Lincoln later put into writing. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come here to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow 
this ground, these brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be dedicated to the great task remaining for us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion, that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we hear all of this. He's giving all the reasons why we need to do something. What is it that he says we need to do? That these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. We were the only ones. Don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not doing a, 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 a rah-rah, lift-up-America-here thing. This is deeply embedded in the biblical text. Lincoln knew... Our government stood alone in the annals of history. Exceptionalism is not a dirty word. Monarchs, dictators, and totalitarians want to enslave you. But it is only because of the word of God that the founders knew all of this from the Bible and were given an opportunity can this work? Is it possible? As many flaws as there were, a sufficient internal transformation had occurred in a sufficient number of people to give it a shot. Will it succeed? I don't know. That's not my business. My business is to look into and see what it means to understand the Word of God. So a few things to consider. We're just going to go on just a couple of minutes over 1150 here. First, please understand, Paul is not talking about the morality of slavery. He's arguing about submission to proper authority. And while the Bible primarily simply describes slavery, Paul does not defend it. He regulates it and clarifies that it is, in fact, godless. Second, while authority is used and, and misused, that's what's in view in this text. That, and I believe what Paul's primary motivations were about writing the text in the first place. It's only tangential that you have business in the workplace. In fact, this is about the most one of the most sordid elements in all of humanity. Third, Christian principles have the power to eventually revolutionize society, but not before the individual lives are changed. The gospel is primary. Fourth, 
I'm taking this out of the employee-employer relationship, and I'm, uh, and I'm wanting to embed it in your heart. I want to, because I believe that's where the true application is. When we are tempted, when you or I are tempted to force, to control, to exploit, to limit, to dehumanize, or to treat others as a commodity, the enslaver's voice is what we're listening to. And it's only because we are no longer slaves to sin, but servants of the Most High God. And yes, slaves, I'll put it that way. Why? Because He does own me. He is the only one with the right. He's the only one who knows my heart. He is the only one who loves me sufficiently to take care of me in the way that I need to be taken care of. No other being in this universe period, full stop, has that right or that power. But he does. God is the owner of all things. I am a steward. The history of slavery is a significant and untellable story filled with tragedy and cruelty. And it spans, it spans prehistory to now. And I want to end with this. John Newton We are all familiar with John Newton. God-mocking, hard-drinking, womanizing man and an enslaver. He was a slave trader. But he was also transformed by the grace of God. And he was so stunned by that grace that one of the things that he wrote was a song that all of us know at least in part by heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But he didn't simply write lyrics. He was active in the abolitionist movement for the British slave trade. Newton was, in fact, a key witness when the prime minister put together a committee to investigate this. And it was his compelling testimony that ended not only slave trade, but the institution of slavery itself across Britain. God's deep, transformational, redemptive work in our lives precedes his work in society. And so go and do, but not before you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, um, all we can do is bow before you in any other context. And that's obscene. In any other situation that is disgusting and vile. But because you are the creator. Because you are the giver of life. Oh, not only do we bow before you in worship and praise. But we do so with full hearts. Our hearts, whatever song we're singing. Whatever prayer we're praying is filled with this 
backdrop of Newton's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us the insights that, that we need in uh, difficult subjects like this and that we might be able to glorify your name uh, in all things and in all contexts, in all subjects. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.